Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. We are back from our brief summer break, and I hope that you all had a great holiday. It is hot as heck out there, so I've been staying in and catching up on my research for the show. And let me tell you guys, we've got some wild stuff coming up this year, and I can't wait to share it with you. But kicking it off, this week we have Abbott Kaler, who you might know as Karen Abbott, author of The Ghosts of Eden Park, The Bootleg King, The Women Who Pursued Him, and The Murder That Shocked Jazz Age America. This is the story of George Remus, a criminal so successful and so outrageous that he is thought to be the real-life inspiration for Jay Gatsby in F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. But the truth of his story is stranger than fiction, and that is what we are talking about today. Now, I don't know how many of you have watched Boardwalk Empire. It is a great show. But while I was reading Abbott's book, I was surprised by just how many of the details of the show were absolutely true. Remus is even a recurring character who steals every scene he's in. So we're talking about that, bootlegging as a business, Prohibition, George's wife Imogene, and Assistant Attorney General Mabel Walker Willebrandt, the woman who went after the bootleggers when nobody else would. It is a wild story, and if you love it, you can hear even more about George's exploits on Abbott's new podcast, Remus, The Mad Bootleg King, which just came out on iHeartRadio this week. So without further ado, here's my interview with Abbott Kaler. All right, everybody, my guest today is Abbott Kaler, author of The Ghosts of Eden Park, The Bootleg King, The Women Who Pursued Him, and The Murder That Shocked Jazz Age America. Welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, goodness, I cannot tell you how exciting this book was. I, I mean, I couldn't put it down. It's um, it's quite long and there's so much research in it, but but every single page is is like shocking in a different way. Oh, um, thank you. Now that's that's the highest compliment you could pay because you you know when you ha- when you're lucky enough to have a wealth of historical detail, um, it's it's a matter of just sort of curating. Uh, so I'm glad. I'm really happy to hear that worked for you. Oh yeah, no, it definitely did. And uh, at the center of it, you've you've really got three people, right? So let's start with George Remus. He's a very, very interesting man. So what was he like? <laughs> uh, George Remus um, was really, and, and maybe your your audience is familiar with Boardwalk Empire, the HBO show. You know, he was used as comic relief and um, he was just sort of this weird person uh, that they would flash to um, from New York or Chicago, wherever the other main characters were. And he would say, America has to come to Cincinnati. America has to come to George Remus. Remus <laughs> is the good stuff. And he was just, you know, slowly every scene he was in. And I uh, did some digging and discovered he was a real character, like uh, some of the other ones in the show, Nucky Thompson, who was uh, changed a little bit, but, um, and uh, Lucky Luciano and uh, various other gangsters, Al Capone, of course. And, uh, and I just realized that his life was much more fascinating and dramatic than anything that was portrayed on the show and um, started digging and, and quickly realized that, you know, I, I, I'm going to have a hell of a lot of fun doing research on this guy and he's going to make a really interesting sort subject for a book. Oh yeah. And he definitely did. So before he was a bootlegger, he was um, a pharmacist. He was a lawyer, uh, a very theatrical lawyer. He sounds quite Perry Mason actually. So how did he become a bootlegger and what made him so successful? Well, even before he was a pharmacist or a lawyer, you know, he was a poor kid emigrating from Germany to uh, Chicago when he was a young boy. Um, Very poor family, poor upbringing, upbringing. 
um, to, in order to make ends meet, um, he had to go to work at an uncle's pharmacy. His father was an alcoholic and was unable to work. Um, and Remus had great ambition. I mean, when you look at his origins, he's really sort of the epitome of the American dream here. This immigrant comes and he's full of vim and vigor and really wants to make a name for himself and make it in America. Um, and he starts learning the pharmaceutical business. Uh, and while he's working at the pharmacy, you know, during the night, he would study for law exams and, and familiarize himself with the law and became a lawyer. Um, he became a very prominent uh, defense attorney in Chicago. And as you said, he was very theatrical. Uh, he was known for, you know, leaping across the courtroom and attacking opposing counsel and crying and screaming and tearing out his hair, what little hair he had. Um, and he had many fans who called him the Napoleon of the Chicago bar. And he also had many detractors uh, who called him the weeping, crying Remus. Um, but his, his transition to bootlegging was uh, it really fortuitous for him. It's just sort of a confluence of timing and events that worked out. Um, you know, in 1920, he started getting a new kind of defendant. Uh, there were all these men coming to his office being charged with uh, violating prohibition laws, violating the Bolstead Act. Um, uh, and Remus, you know, took a look at these men, took a look at their cases and said, you know, they, they're paying these fines without a care at all. They have money coming out of their pockets. Um, I am much smarter than any of them. And if I got into this business, I could clean up. So he took his pharmaceutical background and his legal background and scoured the Volstead Act for a loophole. Um, and the loophole was that with a physician's prescription, you could buy, manufacture, uh, um, transport alcohol, quote unquote, for medicinal purposes. So <laughs> you, that was interpreted very widely, as you can imagine. And Remus really took advantage of that loophole and, and started his business. Right. And uh, and he became very successful. You said at one point he he controlled or owned, what, 35% of, of liquor in the United States? Is that right? Yeah. Um, you know, he, at the height of his business, it was really quite amazing. Um, he, he'd set up this business where, uh, the main brilliant part of it was that he had all of his quote unquote medicinal liquor on the trucks after getting the proper prescriptions and doing all of that. And these trucks were ostensibly heading to pharmacies and doctors and places where they were, you know, for the legal market. But he had another set of trucks, his own transportation fleet that would hijack these trucks steal all the liquor on, on his first set of trucks, and then divert it to the illegal market at any price that Remus named. So he was basically robbing Remus to pay Remus. And he called this enterprise the circle. Um, he just was going around in a circle and robbing, stealing from himself and selling it on the, you know, the uh, illegal market. And um, it was somebody, something that nobody else had thought to do up to that point. And, and Remus sort of quartered the market on that. And, you know, at his height, uh, did own 35% of all the alcohol in the United States. That's absolutely incredible. And of course, he became unbelievably wealthy. How much money are we talking about here? Um, it, it's almost unfathomable. You know, you you kind of, I, I mean, he was sort of the Jeff Bezos or, you know, uh, of his time. Um, you know, one of my favorite anecdotes about him is that he had so much money that he considered opening up his own bank, uh, you know, just for his money. <laughs> the other, you know, just he couldn't, he couldn't keep it all in one place. He just, you know, scattering around banks and he just wanted his own bank for that. He would carry around $100,000 in his pockets. Um, he didn't know what to do with all the money he had. 
Uh, one really insane estimate I read was that he had between 20 million and 40 million dollars at the at the height of his empire, which is a figure not adjusted for inflation. That's actually in 1920, 1921 money. So really just a staggering, staggering, uh, ugly <laughs> display of wealth. Oh, absolutely unbelievable. And of course, by the end, well, things change for George. So how do we get there? Around this time, he married Imogene, his second wife, and she's one of the principal figures in this book. So Imogene is a complicated character. You you really feel for her, but there's like this darkness there, even though, even before things really took a turn for the worse. So how would you describe Imogene? You know, I, I think George and Imogene had a lot in common. Um, they were both uh, of uh, poor backgrounds. Um, they both were strivers. They both were ambitious. They were sort of ruthless in their ambitions. Um, and she, I think Imogene um, knew, how to, knew how to attract George. You know, here's somebody, George liked to consider himself a bit of a savior. I think somebody who was the man about town, who was, uh, you know, be benevolent in his, in his own way. He thought, he, he thought of himself as a gentleman. Um, so here's this woman, she's a single mom raising a young girl. She is the, you know, the dust girl, quote unquote, in his office, which is what they called a cleaning person at the time. Um, and they started talking about their mutually miserable marriages. Her husband was always out flandering, spending all their money. He wasn't helping with the daughter. He was, you know, humiliating her all the time. And Remus, of course, was um, estranged from his first wife, who had many of the same complaints that Imogene had about her husband. And they really bonded over that. And, and George offered to handle her divorce pro bono. And what do you know, they eventually, you know, fall in love and, and get an apartment together and, and they're off to the races. Um, and I, I do think that George found a lot to admire in her. Um, he thought that she was a savvy woman. Uh, he consulted her in his business dealings. He had many, many nicknames for her. He gave nicknames to everybody. But um, his one of his main nicknames for her was the Prime Minister. Um, which really gives you a sense of sort of the the respect he accorded her in, in terms of um, important decisions that had to be made. And of course, Imogene only had one nickname for George, and that nickname was Daddy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so which also might give you a little bit of insight into the, the dynamic that they had with each other. Mm, yeah, and it, it seems quite happy at first, but, uh, but it becomes, you know, kind of increasingly toxic and abusive. Um, so what was their relationship like as time went on? Well, I, I definitely think that there is evidence that George abused her physically, um, you know, would smack her around. His first wife had also in her divorce uh, filings had alluded to that fact. Um, and he was a workaholic and 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 sort of temperamental and very, um, very idiosyncratic in his ways and particular in his ways. And I cannot imagine he was an easy person to live with. Um and, you know, the way he would placate Imogene is by giving her a blank check and telling her to go around town and buy herself a $100,000 ring and decorate their new mansion. You know, they bought a mansion in the fanciest neighborhood in Cincinnati in Price Hill um, and renovated it to the tune of $12 million uh, in today's money. And, and so, you know, for a while they got along like that. He did his thing. She did her thing. They consulted each other. Um, when, when it was, uh, uh, you know, they thought that they had to do so. And, um, I think, I think they tried to make it work for as long as they could. And, and of course, with two strong personalities like that, uh, it wasn't long before the cracks started the show. Mm, for sure. But, uh, in the early days of George's success, they did have some good times, uh, throwing some incredibly lavish parties with mind bogglingly expensive party <laughs> favors. 
They were so much fun to write about. He did throw parties. You know, actually his parties um, are one of the reasons that he is said to have inspired Jay Gatsby, the character of Jay Gatsby in The Great Gatsby. Um, and there are all these apocryphal tales that uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and George Remus met when Fitzgerald was stationed in the army down in Kentucky. Um, but there was no hard evidence that they met. They probably did not meet. I don't think the timing was correct for them to have met. Um, but there's no doubt that, that Fitzgerald knew who George Remus was when he was writing The Great Gatsby. You know, by that time, the entire world knew who George Remus was. And there were so many parallels between the two men. Um, they both loved a mysterious woman. They both had these lavish mansions. And they both threw these really incredible parties. Um, and at Remus's most famous party, it was a New, New Year's Eve party from 1921 turning into 1922, uh, it was just his way to try to um, enter society. He wanted to prove himself as a, somebody who was worthy of hanging out with William Howard Taft, the former president, and all these other you know, captains of industry and, and illustrious figures. Uh, and his party favors, um, he had a diamond stick pin for all of the men, um, an engraved watch for all the men. Um, every single party goer got a thousand dollar bill stuffed under their dinner plate, which is sort of the equivalent of you and I looking under our plates right now and finding like 14 grand. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and for every woman, every woman there got a brand new 1922 car. So he was sort of the, you know, Oprah Winfrey precursor. You get a car, you get a car. Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, and and it was really incredible. And and one of the other details that stuck with me in, in researching his parties was he would light his guests' uh, cigars with a hundred dollar bill, like a match. This is an era when the average annual salary was twelve hundred dollars. So I mean, he treated a hundred dollar bill as if it were nothing. And and meanwhile, that's you know a, a big chunk of somebody's salary. A, work, a regular working man. Um, and uh, and that's you know the the connection to Jay Gatsby was was made from from these parties. Absolutely incredible. Now, there are a lot of parallels. Uh, and you write that in some ways, George embodied the spirit of the 1920s. So so how did he do that? Oh, I think it was sort of, you know, I've, I've heard historians say and from the research that I've read, it really seemed like uh, the 1920s were the decade when America modernized itself. It became a modern country. Um, you know, industrialization and um, rapid changes and women's rights and the vote. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of, you know, people daring to act in shocking ways that would have been considered um, uh, really rude in Victorian society, women daring to go out by themselves without a male chaperone and dancing and wearing shorter skirts and bearing ankle and smoking, um, just sort of a rapid change in, in social conventions, um, and, uh, along with all of the incredible business growth and, and um, manufacturing that was also going on in the 1920s. Uh, and um, and I think that that George Remus really embodied that spirit. Here's somebody who's a self-made man, uh, somebody who was taking advantage of the 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 sort of change in mores and the idea that people should be more free and a little bit more decadent. And and you know, we, of course, you know, it's <laughs> I think we should have learned by now that it's really impossible and also a really dumb idea to try to legislate vice. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, it, again and again, people make great profit from leg legislate, trying to legislate vice. Uh, and and that was another way that he was really able to sort of, you know, um, become become the spirit of the error and just capitalize on on, you know, people's reactions to the all of the rapid change. 
Yes, absolutely. Now, at the height of his power, this time that he's lighting cigars with $100 bills and throwing these parties, he really seemed untouchable, at least at least to George. And maybe he would have been if it wasn't for Assistant Attorney General Mabel Walker Willebrandt. So Mabel really stood out as a fascinating character. What can you tell us about her? Yeah, she really was. And I... I... I really always am looking for a strong female character in my nonfiction. Women's history has gotten really erased from nonfiction, from the, from the history books, uh, or forgotten or pushed aside. And so I always try to make it a goal to really resurrect interesting female characters who made, made a mark in their day and age. And she really fit the bill. Um, Mabel Willembrandt was a... Uh, a, a public defender in Los Angeles, um, devoting herself solely to uh, representing prostitutes um, and really sort of made a name for herself out there and, and fought for equality for these women in terms of, you know, making sure that the Johns, the customers were also brought into the courtroom um, and, and their names were exposed uh, just as the women, you know, had to be had to be put on public notice. And when she got the call uh, from the Harding administration to interview for this job from Attorney General Harry Dougherty, who was her immediate boss, uh, Mabel Willenbrandt was only 33 years old, five years out of law school, and had never prosecuted a single case in her career. And, and you know, mind you, too, women had just gotten the right to vote eight months earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so it was kind of really a, a really new phenomenon for women to be stepping into legal positions and positions of power like this. Um, but she was excited about this prospect. She took the took the interview in Washington. She had to borrow a shirt because she had no money for a good clothes for her interview. Um, and you could just imagine what, you know, Harry Doherty and Warren Harding and all of the other people in the administration who did not approve of prohibition. You know, these were men who were pretty openly defying the law that, you know, the, the administration should be upholding. Um, and you could imagine that they just like, looked at Mabel Willember and said, oh, you know, the little lady is inexperienced. She's not going to know what she's going doing. She's going to be uh, overwhelmed. Um, we're going to be able to continue our cozy relationship, her quid pro quo with all the bootleggers. And lo and behold, they, they you know, give her the position. She swears herself in. And within a few months, she is just kicking ass. She yeah. is going after George Remus. She is going after um, another bootlegging ring in Savannah. She is sending out agents everywhere to try to break up these, you know, very lucrative and coordinated whiskey rings. Um, and she kind of anoints Remus public enemy number one. You know, she began getting letters uh, right away from concerned officials in Ohio about this uh, bootleg whiskey monopoly that was, you know, consuming their state. And she really had no time for... Um, to, to play around. She was very serious about it. And I love this irony, you know, George Remus, who was this premier bootlegger, the most successful bootlegger in American history, was also a teetotaler who never had a drop of drink of alcohol. Meanwhile, Mabel Willenbrandt was somebody who liked her California wine. <laughs> you know, she was somebody who really appreciated a drink, but um, as soon as prohibition uh, wasn't, yeah, was uh, the law of the land, she followed, she followed the law. So I kind of appreciate that, uh, you know, their, 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 that little, interesting tidbit about their two personalities. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was funny too. Yeah. So um, despite her intelligence and tenacity, Mabel was routinely underestimated. So what were President Harding's feelings about prohibition? And uh, do you think that the administration hired Mabel kind of hoping she was an idiot? Oh, exactly. I mean, you know, like I said, I think they hired her um, knowing that she was inexperienced. She was probably going to be overwhelmed. I mean, she was in charge of, um, 
every prohibition case across the country, you can imagine they were just rolling in and rolling in and rolling in. Um, I'm, of course, she didn't have her hands in every one, but she was in constant contact with uh, federal officials in all of those states, keeping abreast of all the cases, focusing and focusing on the really big ones. Um, and Warren Harding, I mean, he pretty openly, you know, uh, indulged. Uh, he would have poker games in the White House attended by Willibrand's boss and um, a couple other officials that she dealt with on a daily basis. Uh, and, you know, was known to have alcohol in quarters and in the White House quarters and, you know, would would not bring it out in polite company. He would serve it to his his cronies. Um, but it was fairly well known. And and some of his, the people in his cabinet and his administration had spoken openly out about how they did ha their disdain for prohibition. Uh, so it was pretty well known. Um, but Willembrandt made it a point to say that her immediate boss never impeded her. Um, she had full reign to do whatever she felt she had to do in order to enforce prohibition. Um, and I think he did that just knowing, you know, that the public scrutiny was on him and, uh, and, and, uh, it would, it would actually come to bite him later on that, that, you know, the public scrutiny about his own sort of private foibles. So. Mm, that's right. And then, uh, she actually predicted his having to resign because she read his poem. Yeah. I mean, she was a woman of many talents. You know, she, um, she, this is a woman who, who adopted a daughter. She wasn't married. Um, she adopted a daughter, which, you know, became a single parent, which seems incredibly progressive for the time. Um, and she was also a palm reader. Uh, and she, um, you know, whenever she met somebody new or, or knew them well enough to ask, she would ask to read their palm and, and definitely saw in the lines of Attorney General Doherty's uh, palm that he was going to have to resign. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. And uh, and her personal life was very progressive. As you mentioned, of course, she she adopted a daughter and she also had some uh, some very progressive views on marriage. How did she feel about it? Well, she was married for a brief time um, and, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a love, I guess you would call it a starter marriage in this day and age where, uh, you know, they were struggling together in school and that sort of thing. But it quickly became apparent that, that the burden of the relationships, uh, you know, the work was falling to her. Uh, his mother was sick. She had to tend to his family. Um, he was sick. Um, she paid his bills. She, and then she would come home and do all the cleaning and the cooking and all of the housework. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, she she just realized she was sort of subjugating her own desires and her own will and her own progress in order to, you know, keep keep this marriage afloat without any real help or partnership. Uh, and she she wrote incredibly progressive essays about about how women should not have to lose themselves um, if they chose to be in a in a marriage or become somebody's partner. Uh, that it was just as important for their own for themselves to to keep growing as it was for their male partner. Um, so so she, it was really she really was kind of a visionary in that way. Yeah, I thought that was wonderful. And of course, she had an outstanding career. And uh, and at one point, she became uh, arguably the most famous woman in America. Although, um, I, oh my God, I, I had to shake my head at some of the things that the newspapers were saying about her. You know, she was doing all this stuff. She's kicking ass and they're just like, oh, she has really pretty eyes. You know, like, <laughs> And she, that was, it's true. It was endless. They could not write a newspaper article reporting on her accomplishments or her press conference or an arrest she made or anything she did or said without commenting on how she looked or what she was wearing or how, she, you know, um, you know, the way that her eyes signaled that. Um, a calculating cold character who only cared about professional advancement. Uh, her hands, there were newspaper articles just written about her hands. 
Um, it was incredible. And she would write these really amazing letters to her parents, voicing her frustration and say, oh, I hate this girly, girly stuff. Um, and why can't they just, you know, appraise what a woman is doing rather than how she appears? And it was a recurring theme in her diary entries and her letters to her parents. And um, and it just was something she had to constantly grapple with. And, and you know, this still goes on, obviously, today. And you can imagine how much worse it was exponentially in 1920. Mm, yes, yes, absolutely. So uh, despite his best efforts, uh, George did eventually go to prison uh, for, for what he was doing. But his experience there was not like everybody else's. The way you describe it, it sounds more like a resort. So what was prison <laughs> like for George? Oh, yeah, it it was, you know, one of the really fascinating things about researching, you know, law cr crime back in, in history is number one, reporters were on top of the crime scene. You know, they were often there before the cops or or any kind of official personnel. Um, they were there on top of the bodies, taking pictures, you know, talking to people. Uh, and, you know, there was no cordoning off the crime section. Everybody was crowding in and just incredible access and incredible detail in the crime reporting back then. And likewise with the jails, um, you know, if you were somebody of George Remus's stature and wealth in the 1920s and you had to go to prison, you know, they talk about country club prisons today. Well, this was more like sort of like, I don't know, a country club, like a palace prison. It was sort of like the, the Taj Mahal of, of prisons um, where he was in Atlanta, in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary um, on, a, on a row, a section of the jail called Millionaire's Row where he was with many other wealthy bootleggers who had also been caught and were serving time for violating prohibition laws. Um, and he had his own cook, he had his own maid, he had somebody coming out to, you know, uh, homemade dinners every night, uh, completed like with a mahogany table and a tablecloth and fresh flowers, often brought by Imogene. Um, there was somebody to wait on them at these dinners. Um, he was able to refurbish his cell um, you know, and he even had a selection of liquor. You know, here is a man in jail <laughs> violating prohibition laws, and he has a bar in his jail cell where he can <laughs> offer visiting reporters a, a whiskey. Um, so it's really just uh, incredible to me to just to, to just it's and to me that was also just um, it, it really speaks to the 1920s decadence that we're talking about. I I I don't think George Remus could have happened in any other decade of America but the 1920s. Um, oh and all of the, all of the, you know, the sort of vast wealth and, and you know, um, that surrounded him was just so um, specific to that time period. Yeah, definitely. And, and some of it is so strange to me. One of the things that really stood out was... Um, them bribing prison guards $500 to $1,000 each time for Imogene to come in and clean his cell for him. Like, <laughs> is that what you would do? Like, would you, would you not like get somebody else to clean the cell? But like, she'd, she'd actually like scrub it. Oh, like, she, on her hands she would, well, I think he wanted, he wanted to also have the privilege of her being in his cell and, you know, maybe she'd stay over sometimes and, um, and just sort of get some more time with imaging than he otherwise would have had if he slips the guard a few extra dollars. But yeah, she would come on her hands and knees, scrub his cell. Uh, his friends called her the angel of the pen, um, you know, and and uh, it was, uh, you know, prison was not a fun experience for George Remus, despite all of this um, sort of uh, comfort around him. Um, and, uh, you know, it's 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 kind of, you know, when I think when you're a control freak as George Remus was, 
Um, you can only control so much inside the prison. And he did what he could to control his surroundings. Um, but of course, outside, it was an entirely different matter. Right, right. And speaking of which, uh, things were starting to change outside, unbeknownst to George. So yeah. tell us about Franklin Dodge. Yeah, Franklin Dodge was another uh, interesting character and and kind of one of those things where if I was had been writing a novel, I would think it was too incredible. Yet this prohibition agent sent by Mabel Willenbrandt to investigate George Remus, um, you know, ends up having an affair with George Remus's wife. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's just kind of crazy. Um, and it, I loved every every minute of it. But he, so the, the story goes that he he did put, help put George Remus in prison for violating the Volstead Act. But then once George Remus was in the Atlanta penitentiary, Mabel heard that there was corruption at the at that jail, uh, you know, bribes between bootleggers and the guards and all of the things that were going on, um, special treatment, et cetera. And she wanted to put a stop to that. She didn't want these bootleggers, you know, profiting again off of their nefarious deeds, even if they were in prison. So she sends Franklin Dodge down to the Atlanta pen and tells him to investigate this corruption. And meanwhile, George Remus hears something about Franklin Dodge, you know, that maybe he's not the really honest agent that Mabel Willebrand thinks he is. So maybe he's open to a bribe. He's open to a quid pro quo. So um, George Remus sets up a meeting with Franklin Dodge, you know, sort of floats that idea toward him. And then the next time Imogene comes to visit, he gives Imogene an order and says, you know, Imogene, I want you to quote unquote, cultivate Franklin Dodge, because his hope was that if Franklin Dodge became his friend, he would use his influence or, you know, took his bribe money, would use his influence to get him out of jail and, and commute a sentence or whatnot. So Imogene did as George asked, and she began cultivating Franklin Dodge, uh, but of course, not quite in the way that Remus had hoped. Yeah, that that did not go uh, as he planned, did it? <laughs> Lots oh of God. cultivating going on, but none of the, none, nothing good for Remus. To what extent do you think George unknowingly orchestrated his own downfall? That's a really good question. Um, I don't think he, I don't think he foresaw it. I, I think he was in denial for a long time, which is understandable, especially I think, you know, being in prison where you, you really are helpless to, to get out there and do anything. Um, and even when his prison friends were say, you know, coming to him and saying, George, I think you should know there's rumors out there that your wife is having an affair with Franklin Dodge. Uh, you know, he got mad at the messenger um, and he really tried to to deny it for as long as he possibly could. It was just too horrible for him to consider, especially since, like I said, he he was, you know, couldn't get out there to address the situation himself and do his own investigating. Um, and one of my favorite parts of my research were reading the increasingly unhinged letters he would send to Imogene. Um, you know, basically like apologizing for going off on her, um, telling her, you know, my baby, my prime minister, my centipede, my monkey, my gem, the apple of my eye, not one, but both, like all of these <laughs> crazy nicknames he had for her. And, um, you know, it was just sort of like a, a, a really raw look into this man's soul, such as it was. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and just, you could just, you know, see him falling apart you know i could you could reach back through the history reach back 100 years and actually just feel this man crumbling um and it was such a visceral visceral angst um that i got from reading his letters and from you know reading his conversations that he was having with people talking about this um and i i think he tried to deny it for as long as he possibly could mm, yeah definitely 
So even before Imogene got involved with Dodge, you know, like cracks were starting to kind of show in their relationship. Um, he was becoming, you know, increasingly violent, you know, and abusive of her, like in front of other people as well. You know, there, there were yeah. witnesses to this. And then he he was having mental health issues as well. So when he was in prison, he claimed that he started to experience these uh, like brainstorms, right? And yeah. letters, uh, he later said that he would hallucinate a halo around his own head, which would tell him what to do. So yeah. what was his mental health like at this time? You know, it's it's a very good question. Um, and not being a psychiatrist or not being an alienist, you know, in the parlance of the times, they were called alienists, which is another fascinating, just to go on aside for a minute, um, from the, the term alienist, uh, the etymology is, is from people who said, you know, the psychiatrists study why somebody becomes alienated from themselves. Mm -hmm. That's the way they sort of described mental illness at the time was somebody becoming alienated from themselves. Um, so that's gave rise to the term alienist, um, which of course we don't use anymore. Um, and I think that it's fair to say, you know, from my armchair psychiatry perspective, 100 years later, that he was probably suffering from um, uh, panic attacks, mm -hmm. most definitely. Um, I can't, I can't imagine that prison wasn't uh, very, very stressful mentally, emotionally for him physically. Um, and, and I'm sure he also had some kind of, you know, personality disorders. He was, you know, you know, I, I who knows, but, but um you know, the, the alienists would, would probably, you know, say that he was borderline or, uh, or, you know, those kind of things, which were not really diagnoses at the time, but, um, and it was just really fascinating, kind of humorous to see too, what, what they took to signify mental illness at the time, you know, the fact that George Remus did not wear underwear, um, was possibly the sign of an unsound mind, you know, <laughs> like, whoa, he's, he's going commando. This guy's crazy. <laughs> um, you know? And, uh, so it was, it was kind of, you know, their, their more primitive version of, 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 you know, of mental health diagnoses that we have today. And it's, so it's really kind of hard to say definitively, but I think we can at least say he was suffering at the very least from panic attacks. So that yeah. actually makes me wonder, uh, later on, of course, uh, George spent some time, um, in, I guess the, the twenties equivalent of like a psychiatric ward. Yeah. Yeah. So without giving too much away about what got him there, <laughs> do you think that a lot of this was genuine or could he have been putting some of it on? I know, um, at the time, uh, he was seen by a number of psychiatrists who said that not only was he not insane, but he was basically a bad actor and a threat to society. So do yeah. you think that he he could have been putting some of this on? Maybe all he had was anxiety and he was making it up. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think that uh, he was a naturally histrionic person too. He had a mm -hmm. he kind of a, a personality that was uh, prone to theatrics. I mean, he, here's somebody who would cry in a courtroom um, at the drop of a hat. He had the ability to just really turn it on. So I think it's fair to say that, you know, why, if, if he were in a situation where he, um, you know, wanted to like exacerbate any authentic issues he was having, sure, sure. I think Remus would put it on a little bit. Um, it's, it's kind of embedded in his character for him to do so. Hmm. 
and then he does have uh he does have some of that background that makes you wonder i mean well one i mean just referring to himself in the in the third person it does <laughs> it, like like you say like with the alienist it does kind of alienate you from yourself he seemed almost disconnected from some of his own kind of actions and then he'd always been prone to to violent outbursts you yeah. know so is, is this just the guy's personality or is it like pathology you know yeah no, i think it's a good question and it was one of the um I think in the book is probably one of the book club questions, like let's debate George Remus's mental state, you know, because it's kind of fun to wonder, you know, knowing his background and knowing his history and knowing his his penchant for theatrical displays of emotion um, of all kinds, you know, how far would he take it? Um, how far could he take it and get away with it? Really, really, yeah. Interesting to think about. So, of course, when he got out of prison, uh, he got home and uh, and a couple of surprises awaited him. Right before he was released, Imogene had filed for divorce. But when he got back to his house, it was not as he remembered it. So yeah. what happened while he was in jail? Um, Franklin Dodge was happening. Mm. Um, <laughs> Franklin Dodge and Imogene's uh, clandestine affair was happening full force. Um, and, you know, they took it upon themselves to... Uh, in, in George's view of things, they took it upon themselves to ransack his mansion and steal everything and leave him, you know, penniless and without his priceless treasure, some of which he had collected very carefully over the years. There was a signature of George Washington and, um, and various antiques, you know, imported from Italy and whatnot. Um, and in Imogene's version of the story, George had asked her to have an auction um, of some of their things at the mansion to help pay for the for the his bills and to make sure the company kept running, um, you know, paying off people trying to look into new business ventures, um, which he even tried to do when he was in jail. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's um, it, it two two sides of that story. Um, but but you know, the upside is that he came home and and his beloved mansion and his beloved belongings were not quite as, you know, as he had left them. So how did things accelerate from there? George arrives home and, and finds the house empty and Imogene is gone, right? So what happened next? Um when when George got home, um, you know, he had to address the fact that Imogene was uh wanting a divorce. Um, she was still denying, by the way, that she was involved with Franklin Dodge. She never admitted this to George. Um, she was talking to everybody else in her life about how much she loved Franklin Dodge and how she hoped to be his wife and this and that. But to George, all she ever said was, don't worry, daddy, Mr. Dodge is our friend. Um, and that she was still working on him to um, you know, mitigate any legal issues that were still surrounding his, his case. Um, and but the, you know the divorce proceedings were initiated, and many times they they would have some kind of meeting to go over paperwork and discuss things, and it would seem like that they were going to reconcile. So it was kind of you know they went back and forth for a while, um, but things eventually got a little bit more uh, heated and a little bit more violent, and um, one of the parties decided to uh, hire a hitman against the other. So I don't want to say who's who, but. Um, but I will say this at, at, by the end of that escapade, the hitman was so frightened of both George and Imogene that he was afraid he was the one that was going to be murdered. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So of course this, uh, this really kind of increasingly toxic relationship culminates in a, in a truly scandalous murder that, as you say, it shocked the country at the time. Okay. So we won't give too much away about, uh, about the actual murder, but what happened to Mabel in the end? What is what is her legacy? Um, Mabel 
kind of had a, 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 a resurgence um, after her time in, in uh, as in the attorney general's office. Um, is actually kind of triumphant. She she kept thinking she was going to replace um, the the, assistant, the attorney general, become attorney general herself, um, but she was not appointed, um, and she was very disappointed about this and felt betrayed actually. And so Mabel um, went back to California and started representing wine growers. So she actually switched sides, um, and a lot of her old prohibition colleagues felt betrayed that she went to the dark side. And she was actually um, uh, involved in, in um, you know, the California Wine Growers Association. She was, you know, uh, helping them with all of their cases. And Al Capone became not somebody who, you know, she had her sights on, but actually a, somebody that she was afraid was like a business rival. <laughs> you know, he, he actually became a business rival. And I just another note about Al Capone and, and Will and Brand's legacy. Um, she is the one who who um, argued before the U.S. Supreme Court about bootleggers being taxed for their business, um, which set the stage for Al Capone getting trapped by tra uh, tax evasion. So she is the one who set in motion the laws that captured Al Capone. Um, and I always, I just love that fact that, that, you know, it was a woman who brought down Al Capone in the end. Um, I guess many women that he had syphilis too, but. Well, that too, yeah. Yeah, that's so <laughs> In a legal sense, in a legal sense, Will and Brandt um, brought down Al Capone in the end. Uh, so, so uh, she, and she had quite a legacy. One of my favorite quotes about her uh, was from John uh, Sirica. I think that's how you pronounce the name. He was a judge who presided over Water Watergate and he had been a good friend of Mabel's. And he said, if Mabel had worn trousers, she could have been president, um, which sort of gives you an idea of, of her, uh, the, the respect that she commanded uh, during her time. It's an absolutely incredible book. And I think that everybody should read it. Uh, but before we talk about your other projects, um, I understand that you've changed your name recently. Not recently, actually. I changed it back in 2014. Um, anyway, it's a weird story. Uh, I got an email from a reader in 2013 that said, uh, do you know that if you Google yourself, it said you died in 2010? Oh. And which was terrifying and really creepy and um, <laughs> a good advertisement for why people should never Google themselves. <laughs> sure enough, uh, it, there was my picture there. It said, die 2010. And at the time um, I was about to turn 40 and I was uh, also th thinking about writing fiction, which I wanted to do under a different name. So I actually went to court in New York and changed my name from Karen Abbott, which is the name on this book um, to Abbott Kaler. Um, and I continued to use, uh, my Karen Abbott professionally, just cause it had been my name on previous books. Um, but now that I, I do have a novel coming out in January and I'm using Abbott Kaler. So we just decided to make everything uniform just to do that exclusively from now on. Um, so, uh, if you look for the ghost of Eden park, it's under Karen Abbott and, uh, my future work will be under Abbott Kaler. Um, I have a novel coming out in January, 2024, uh, which is inspired by a true story of uh, twins. <laughs> uh, and uh, my next nonfiction will also be under Abby Kaler and it's called Then Came the Devil. Um, it is about a, a true story of uh, sort of this failed utopia in the Galapagos Islands in the 1930s um, that was uh, sort of turned into like an adult Lord of the Flies. And I've been having even more fun researching that than I think I, I did during the Ghost of Eden Park. Wow. It sounds like an incredible story and we can't wait to read it. Um, so uh, where can people go to to find more about you and all of your books? My website is avakaler.com. 
Um, you can, you know, email me from there. I have a newsletter that I very rarely send out, but I'm going to start sending it out once a month. I really like to send out little bits of history that people might find interesting. Um, and contests and stuff like that. Sorry, my bird has woken up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, that's good. I hope everybody checks it out. Well, thank you so much. This has been such an amazing conversation. We really appreciate uh, it. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time chatting with you. Once again, I'd like to thank Abbott Kaler for stopping by the show. The Ghosts of Eden Park is out now, and you can listen to Remus, the Mad Bootleg King, on iHeartRadio. You can find Abbott at abbottkaler.com. I'd also like to thank our wonderful patrons on Patreon. Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayanna DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Catherine Rowley-Williams, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory, or you can rate, review, and subscribe, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Mastodon at Dirty Sexy History. We will post photos from today's show on our Instagram. You can check out our website at DirtySexyHistory.com and find links to our guests and our online merch store there too. There's lots of great stuff up there and we're adding new articles all the time. So stop by and say hello. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.